Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here today. Glad we can be together to worship God together. I want to say hi to everybody that's watching us outside on the north patio. Welcome to all of you and to everyone who's watching at home, online, or wherever you are right now. And of course, to everybody that is in this room right here, how awesome is it to be able to be together and see other people in person worshiping God together? It is wonderful. I agree. Yes, Terry, that's right. We are excited about it, and today we get to practice the Lord's Supper together, so we'll have communion a little bit later. But before we do that, oh, I just dropped a piece of this. There we go. Before we do that, uh, we're going to study God's Word together. We're working through a study of the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. So we're going to be there this morning. If you're new, my name is Adam. I'm the senior pastor here at First Free Church, and we're glad you're with us. Afterward, if you'd like to get to know me better or uh, just get to know our church better, I'll be out in the lobby. Feel free to say hi or you can go to efree.org slash connect, fill out our connect card, and we'd love to get in touch with you through that. Well, have you ever been away from someone that you love for a long time where you just missed them so much? Maybe it was a military deployment for some people. Maybe it was a long business trip or or going off to college, and you just remember what it was like to want to see someone so bad face-to-face but not be able to do it for a really long time. About 14 years ago, I went on three mission trips back to back. I went to China twice, and then, uh, and that was grueling, by the way. That was exhausting. That was hiking through mountains and unreached areas without any kind of cell phone access or anything like that. We had GPS, but that was it. And uh, bringing the gospel to unreached people groups with these big, heavy packs on the whole way, hiking many miles a day. It was, it was nuts. That, That was two mission trips. And then the third one, Well, the third one was a a missions cruise to the Bahamas, so I feel like they all kind of balanced out, you know, it it, it worked out in the end. But I remember on that second trip to China, I was engaged at the time to Jenny, and, and all I wanted to do was get home and see Jenny again, you know? I just, I missed her so much. I had, you know, already been to China once, and I was back for the second time, and then I was gonna do this other trip, and, and so I was just spending a lot of time away from her, and I wanted to see her again. And so we made our way through the mountains. Eventually, we got to this little city, and in this city, I had learned enough Mandarin Chinese to be able to get the supplies we needed, get the food we needed, that kind of stuff, get around, talk with people, share the gospel in Chinese. And I was talking with a soldier, who was there, had a motorcycle, and I was trying to figure out, is there a place where I could go check my email? If I could just get a message, you know, if I could just see if she sent me an email and I could send one back to her, and he told me about an internet cafe, and he, I asked him where it was, and he said, well, hop on. He had a motorcycle next to him. I'm like, uh-uh, all right. So I got on the back of this motorcycle with this soldier, and he drove me uh, through, the, through the city to an internet cafe, and I walked in, And there were a ton of computers there, old desktop computers. Every single one had a young man at it playing World of Warcraft. So there's just World of Warcraft everywhere. And the way back, there was a computer that was a different color. It was beige. No one was playing on that computer. And it was the only one available. Everybody else was was playing games. This one was probably a little too old to play a game on. And so it was available for me. So I paid for it. I got it. I figured out how to use it, you know, even though, you know, nothing was in my language. And uh, and eventually I was able to get into my email and read a message from Jenny and send a message back to her. And it meant a great deal to me. But to be honest with you, all it left me was wanting more. All it left me was wanting to see her face to face again. Because the email is great, but it's not the same as seeing someone face to face. Having that personal face to face kind of interaction, as we all know from what we've gone through this year, is a big deal to us. It means an awful lot. 
Anybody that's been in the military, I, I haven't, but for those that have served in the military in the last 10, 15 years, they will tell you what a big deal it is to be able to do a video chat with your family while you're deployed. Or think about 50 years ago when, when all there was was just letters back and forth, and even that took a long time to be delivered. By the time you got some information, it would be outdated information. And you'd go back and forth, but you wouldn't really be able to keep in touch. And maybe there'd be a photo sent here or there. But it's not like today where we have, you know, video chat and be able to see people halfway around the world live in, in real time. It's amazing. But seeing people is really, really important to us. Now, so of course, some people can't see at all or barely at all, right? Some people have a, 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 some kind of a condition with their eyes where they can't actually see or it's super blurry for them. Obviously, I have glasses on or else you would all be blurry to me and I don't have terrible vision. Some people have really, really bad vision where they just can't even make out faces. Um, and for some people, it's so bad that they actually can't even do it with normal glasses. And so medical technology continues to advance and give us the ability to help people who otherwise would not be able to see anything at all really I want to show you an example of that. Here's a man who's trying on a new pair of digital glasses that will allow him to see with clarity and detail that he has never seen before. Whenever, whenever you're ready, you got to be comfortable. Exciting. Ready? Okay. Unbelievable. I can actually see your eye. pretty amazing, right? How, how awesome is that for him to actually be able to see in detail that he's never seen before and, and you can see that it's overwhelming to him and that, that person who's sitting there next to him is just a representative from the, the company. That's, that's not even a loved one to him, but he, just seeing his face and seeing the detail, it's just an incredible moment for him that just breaks him down into, into tears. I want to show you one more and this time it's a baby, so prepare yourselves. Uh, baby Leo was, uh, was diagnosed with a condition that, that caused a bunch of problems for him. But one of the problems was his vision was super blurry. He could not make out faces. So he could be looking at his mom and his dad right in front of him just a foot away and not be able to tell who was who. And dad had a big beard, so that's a problem. He had to reach out and touch the face to see is this mom or dad. Now, my, I, have a, I have a daughter. She's 11 months old. Her name is Ariana. And Ari, uh, just a couple days ago, Jenny was holding her from across the room. And she goes, where's dada? And Ari immediately just whips around, looks, finds me, and goes, dada. And so, you know, at, at 11 months, she's very easily can identify who's mom, who's dad, looks around, has great vision, but baby Leo didn't have any of that. He couldn't tell the difference between his mom and his dad. And so um, this is the moment when he first got a new pair of special baby glasses. Okay, we're just going to show it to you, so watch this. Watch the expression on this baby's face. His name is Leo. He's four months, and this smile... And here's why it means so much to his mom and dad. Before that moment, Leo 
who has a rare disorder affecting his vision, had never had a good, clear look at the world. Most of what he's been able to see up until the, getting the glasses was extremely fuzzy or completely out of focus. Yep, everything, even up-close things like his dad's beard. He'd look at him or, or get close to his face and instantly put his hands towards his cheeks, maybe to identify if it's dad or if it's mom. So the glasses were there to fix that. And the video, it shows the moment he first puts them on and first looks straight into his mother's face. And there's that hesitation, and then there it is. Obviously, Leo likes what he sees. That smile was something that was so different. Yeah, it was just a, it was just remarkable. Smile. Yes, it was remarkable. So here's one last look at this first look. John Donvan, ABC News, Washington. Okay, did anybody not have tears start to well up in your eyes? If that's you, you're a monster. That, that is such an incredible clip. And there's a bunch out there like that that you can find online. I just, I just picked two of them to share with you. And the reason I wanted to share that with you is because I want you to get a sense for what it feels like to go from not being able to see something or not being able to see it clearly to suddenly being able to see. Having vision for the first time is an incredible thing for the two individuals we just watched. And Paul is going to use this as somewhat of an analogy in how he presents Jesus in the book of Colossians. He's going to say some amazing stuff about Jesus that I'll bet many of these people had never heard before. But it's meant to give them clarity and vision into something that they haven't been able to see clearly before. See, Jesus takes what is mysterious about God and makes it known to us. Jesus takes what is unclear, what is foggy, what is blurry, and he makes it clear to us. He presents God to us in a whole new way. He brings to humanity something that it never had before, an understanding of God, a knowledge of God that anyone can have. Before Jesus, there were prophets who talked directly with God, but most people did not have that experience with God. Most people were learning about God from those prophets or from people those prophets taught. And so they didn't have a lot of direct knowledge of God. They had to go based on what the prophets told them. But Jesus changed all of that. So I want to invite you to do something with me now. I want to invite you to stand and read our text this morning together. Would you do that with me? Would you stand up right now? And we are all going to read this passage together. Think about what we just saw, the importance of going from not seeing clearly to seeing clearly, and then read carefully these words from the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. All together here. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created, and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. 
He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to know Jesus in a new way today. God, we come before you now asking to to reveal to us a glimpse of this Savior that you've provided for us and to understand him in a fresh and new way, just as Paul was trying to get across to the believers in Colossae. Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to understand what you want to teach us today about you. And I pray that it wouldn't just be um, some, some good stuff for us today, but that it would be good stuff for us tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and that every day of the week we would remember the Savior that we have, what Jesus is, who Jesus is, and what he's done for us. Help us to see him in a fresh light. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, you can go ahead and have a seat now. Thank you for doing that with me. That passage that we just read from Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is thought by many scholars to be from an old worship song. And and scholars are divided on this, so some people don't think that's the case. Either way, it's a beautiful poetic way to teach about who Jesus Christ really is. It's written kind of as poetry. So maybe it was a song, maybe it wasn't. But it's absolutely beautiful teaching about Jesus And it fits into the context of a larger teaching that Paul is trying to give to the church in Colossae. We've we've seen it already. I'm going to give you kind of a review of where we've come from so you can see how this fits into the bigger picture. Back in Colossians 1, 1 through 8, Paul shared what you're doing right for the church in Colossae. What are they doing right? Here's what I'm thanking God for you. He talks about their faith in Jesus and their love for all of God's people and their hope in heaven. That's what they're doing right. That's the right path to stay on. And then in verses 9 through 10, it's what the spiritual growth path looks like. How do you stay on the right path? What does that look like for you? It means having right knowledge of God's will and right understanding, spiritual wisdom to be able to apply it well, right living that pleases the Lord, and right actions that produce good fruit. And all the while, Paul says, if you remember two weeks ago, Paul says all the while you're going to grow in your knowledge of God. And so this is like a cycle that goes from knowing God and his will and spiritual wisdom and understanding to apply it and living the right way and producing good fruit with right actions. And then you get back to knowing God more, but it's like a spiral. It's an upward spiral that builds on itself as every time you you get more understanding, more knowledge, and your life looks more and more like what God wants it to look like. And then in verses 11 through 14 last week, Paul shares what you'll need for that journey. It's the second half of the prayer. That passage from 9 to 14 is all one prayer of his. So he prayed what he's thankful for on the right path, and then he's praying for them for the future. He talks about the spiritual growth path, and then what are you going to need for that journey? He talks about endurance. He prays for patience because it's not an easy journey, is it? It's not easy to go down that road and stay in the middle of that road. But he says you're going to need joy and thankfulness because of what God has done for you. He says to never forget the hope of the future you have in heaven. Always remember how Jesus rescued you, forgave you, and transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And then we come to verse 15. And verses 15 through 20, which we just read, are all about how to keep your eyes focused on the right point as you're on that path. As you walk that spiritual growth journey, what is your attention supposed to be on more than anything else? What is supposed to have your eyes fixed upon it? What is the focal point that will keep you on the right path? And the answer, you probably already know. What is the answer? Oh boy, not a lot of confidence there. What is the answer? Jesus, okay, a few bold voices out there. Some of you thought it was a trick question. 
I, I know you did. Because Jesus is the Sunday school answer, right? No, it really is the right answer. The focal point that we are supposed to have, Paul is going to say, is Jesus. And it's the whole point of this letter. Everything is going to go through. It's all about Jesus. He needs to be the center of what we do and who we are. And if he is, we'll stay on the right path. That's what Paul's going to talk about. Now, of course, that's easier said than done, isn't it? It's easier said than done. We are prone to wander off the right path. I want to tell you a story um, to illustrate this, but it has to do with winter. And we all know, especially today, winter is coming, right? How many of you like the cold? Anybody like the cold and the snow? Crazy. Unbelievable. I can't believe you people. Of course, I grew up in Michigan, so I spent 18 years in the cold and snow, and I just feel like I've done my time, okay? Like, I've, I've, I've lived it. I've lived the big snow drifts and the cold for like 10 months out of the year or something like that. I just, I've had plenty of snow and cold in my life, and now I'm like, give me two weeks of it, and I'm good. That's all I need. Give me two weeks, and then I'm ready for it to be over with. We're not quite there yet here, but winter is coming, snow is coming, and I'm going to tell you a story about two boys in the snow. They were walking home from school. Maybe you've heard this before. They're walking home from school, and they came to a field, and it was covered in fresh snow. And one of the boys said to the other boy, I'll bet I can make a straighter path across this field than you can. And the other boy said, okay, all right, I'll I'll take that bet. Let's see. And so the first boy that made the challenge, he looked down at his feet, and he just stared at his feet the whole time, and he very carefully placed one foot in front of the other, making sure that each one was straight in line with the one before. And he just stared at his feet the whole time until he got to the very end of the field, and he looked up and turned around to look back at his path and see how he did. And he was really disappointed to find that his path just swerved back and forth all the way across the field. He couldn't understand it. He's like, I was so careful. I paid so close attention. Then he looked at his friend's path, and it was straight as a line. I was just from point A to point B, absolutely, completely straight. He goes, how did you do that? How did you walk across in such a straight line? It's like it's magic or something. And the kid says, it was easy. All I did was pick this tree on the other side of the field and keep my eyes on that the whole time, and I just kept walking toward that tree. And so he made a straight line. He never deviated. And this is kind of an example of what Jesus is supposed to be for us. See, we have this tendency to focus on the footsteps of the day. To focus on the little things that, that, that are around us today and we just put one foot in front of the other and we're sort of moving around and we end up swerving, not realizing it because we take our eyes off the target, off the goal, off of what we're supposed to be looking at, the focal point that's going to keep us on the right path. That's what Paul is talking about here. Jesus is the focal point that we are supposed to keep our eyes on, keep focused on. And if we do that, then we won't wander off the path. Sometimes it's a bad habit that gets us off track. Sometimes it's a poor decision. Sometimes it's refusing to work on a relationship that we need to spend some time in. Sometimes it's a preference that we turn into a dogmatic issue. It could be an obsession with politics or the news. It could be something fun that has turned into kind of an addiction and it takes away from our relationship with Jesus. It could even be something that is objectively good but we've allowed it to become such a focal point in our life that now it is actually taking a higher priority over our walk with Jesus and what he wants us to do. We can actually make a lot of good things into an idol for us. And it takes our focus off of the actual target, which is Jesus Christ. He's the one that if we stay focused on him, we will stay centered on the path, that journey of spiritual growth that we talked about earlier. Now, the enemy is working hard to pull us off the path. The enemy is working hard to get us off into a ditch. We talked about that a few weeks ago. 
And I wonder if any of you can sense the enemy working in that way in your life right now. Have you had any of those experiences this week where he's really trying to get you off track? He's really trying to catch you in some kind of a trap so that you stop moving forward on that path that we've been talking about, growing in your knowledge and applying it and living right and doing good the things that God wants you to do, not so that you earn your salvation, but because you're his child and you want to follow after what he wants for you. And the enemy wants nothing more than to stop that progress, stop that from happening, distract you in any way that he can. The Bible talks about this. Peter says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Paul says in 2 Timothy that people can get caught in the devil's traps. They can get caught in the devil's traps. He talks about people that oppose the truth. He talks about people that start quarrels in church. And he says, watch out for the devil's traps. Did you know that? The devil sets traps for you. The devil and his, and his forces, his demons, his army, there's a very real spiritual force that is working hard to distract you from Jesus and from the life that Jesus wants you to live. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that Satan and his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness to lure people away from following Jesus. They disguise themselves, things that look really good, things that look noble, things that look pure, if we're not very discerning, can actually take our attention off of Jesus. There's a lot working against us here. There are a lot of things distracting us from staying on the center of that path. But Paul knows that walking with God and growing our walk with God, the key to that is to stay focused on Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do in the time we have left is unpack this passage to learn more about Jesus. Okay, he's supposed to be our target. He's the one we're supposed to be focused on. What does Paul mean by that? Who is this Jesus that we are supposed to focus on and what does that mean for us? So dive into Colossians 1 with me, verse 15. The first thing we see here is that Jesus Christ is the creator revealed to his creation. He's the creator revealed to his creation. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God, he says. He existed before anything was created. It is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. The visible image of the invisible God. Now think about what a big deal that was for people. See, before Jesus came, the path to God was somewhat of a mystery. People were looking forward to a time when God would save and redeem and do some amazing things, but they didn't exactly know what that would look like. They didn't know how all of that worked. They really had no idea how God was going to bring about salvation through Jesus Christ dying on a cross. They had some pieces of it, but they really didn't fully understand it, and they couldn't. When they believed in God for salvation, they were trusting in him to do something to allow for salvation, but they didn't understand how, how that was going to happen, how he was going to bring that about. Hebrews 11 gives us this list of all these Old Testament heroes of the faith. It's a fantastic chapter to read through. And the interesting thing is that these people, although they had faith in God, and, that, and God counted that faith as righteousness, did not actually understand how that faith was working to bring them righteousness. And here's, at the end of the chapter, here's what the author says about this. He says, all these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised, for God had something better in mind for us. Isn't that amazing? They didn't have the full picture, and yet they believed there was something better that God had in mind for us, and that something better was Jesus. 
That something better was Jesus coming to this earth, bringing the image of God into a person that could be seen and heard and touched as a human. So why is this such a big deal for Paul? Why is he making this point to the believers in Colossae? Well, there were people in Colossae who were going around and saying that Jesus isn't enough to be right with God. Jesus is good. He's a good guy. He, he was a good guy. He was a good prophet. You know, all that stuff's great, but he's not enough. You also need to follow these sort of traditional religious things, and you also need to honor these certain special days, and you need to worship angels like this. You need to do all these other things, and if you add all those things together, then you'll be made right with God. Then God will accept you and forgive your sin. Paul's message to the believers in Colossae throughout this whole letter is nothing needs to be added to Jesus. Trusting in Jesus and adding anything else to that is not really trusting in Jesus. He's saying you don't have to follow someone else's teaching that didn't come from Jesus in addition to Jesus to be made right with God. Some religions today include Jesus. They talk about Jesus, but they add other things to him that do not come from Jesus' teachings. And they say Jesus is good, but you need these other things too in order to be right with God, in order to be accepted by him, in order to be saved from your sin. There are other things you need to do. And, and Paul would have completely opposed this. Whether it's the visions of Ellen G. White or the golden plates of Joseph Smith or the Pope speaking ex-cathedra, there are lots of things that religions have tried to add to Jesus' teaching to say, you also need this in order to be saved, in order to be right with God. And, and Paul here is saying that's not the case at all. Jesus is God. There's nothing you have to add to Jesus but trusting in him. Let me give you an example of this. Suppose that we were going to do a trust fall, um, you know, pre-COVID because social distance doesn't make it work, whatever. So we're going to do a trust fall, and you're standing right here on the edge of this stage, okay? It's not that high up, but it's high enough that if I just sort of fall back right now, it's going to hurt. And you're standing here, and there are two people down there who are waiting to catch you, okay? So look around you, pick the two. Who are the two that you would want to be catching you? You got that in your mind? Okay, all right, good. Now, one of those two people, and you can pick which one, says to the other one, you can step out, I got this. Now, depending on who you chose, you might not be too excited about that. You might want there to be two people down there to catch you when you fall. And so you say, hey, I, I actually would like both of you to be there if you don't mind. And the one who wanted to stay and have the other one leave goes, don't you trust me? Don't you trust me? Don't you trust me to catch you on my own? And again, depending on who you chose, you may rightly say, eh, not so much. Like, I trust you kind of, but I don't trust you fully. I'd like there to be some backup there. And so you don't trust that person entirely. Now, isn't that what some people do with Jesus? Some people with Jesus say, I kind of trust you, but I trust you with some backup. I want to add some other things from this religion over here and this religion over here. I'm going to do enough good over here to try to, you know, be a backup just in case. And it's like all that stuff that we do that we add to Jesus, all of that is like saying, I don't trust you fully. I want some backup. And Paul's point is trusting anything in addition to Jesus means you're not really trusting in Jesus, not fully. Now, let's say that the person standing here on the edge of this stage is my four-year-old daughter, Adeline. And, and she's a, a, a sweet, cute little girl, and she's standing on the edge of this thing. And let's say that the person down at the bottom is me who's going to catch her. 
Is she going to have any hesitation at all to just fling herself off the stage and have me catch her? No, of course not. She absolutely knows that I can catch her. She needs no backup. She's not going to say, eh, Dad, I don't know. Can we get Mom in here too? I just want the two of you just in case. No, there's complete and total trust there. She doesn't need anything else there. There is full trust, and that's the kind of trust that we need to have in Jesus. That kind of trust where we say we don't need a backup. We are all in. Trusting Jesus plus anything else isn't fully trusting in Jesus. Now, how does this tie back into what we've been talking about? Well, Jesus, Paul is saying, is God in the flesh. He's the visible image of the invisible God. We don't trust him just because he's the way to God. We trust him because he is God. And not only that, but he's the one who implemented creation. Did you know that? Back in Genesis, when God was creating the universe, the heavens, and the earth, the person of the Trinity that actually did the creating was Jesus Christ. God created everything through Jesus Christ. The same Jesus that came and died for us and saved us, he created everything. John talks about this as well. Well, Paul says in in Colossians uh, 117, he existed before anything else, or he made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. So Paul says this in Colossians 1, and then John says at the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him. So whatever this word is, God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. So every single thing that was created was created through this word. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. And how do we know that this word is actually Jesus? Because in verse 14, John says, So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son, which we know is Jesus. Jesus was actually the one who did all of the creating. John uses the phrase, the word, for Jesus because he is the message from God to us. He is the word of God to us. Come to us in the flesh. But not only is he the messenger, he is the creator. And here's why this is so important. Jesus is not some created being. He's not a a prophet or an angel sent by God to us. He is actually the one who did the creating. And so he has authority over all things because he created all things. And not only that, but Paul goes on to say that he continues to hold all things together. Look at verse 17. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. That's point number two. Point number two is Jesus Christ continues to sustain the universe. Jesus is holding all things together right now. Now, how does that work? I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, we keep learning more and more about how our universe works and, and atoms and subatomic particles and, and you know, there, now there's, there's all the quantum stuff and, and we know that there are forces that work on these subatomic particles to, to um, draw and push and bind and all these things. And, and maybe, maybe Jesus is actively the one who is causing those forces to stay working. Maybe those forces are actually Jesus holding everything together. And if he just let go and all of those drawing and pushing and binding forces were just done away with, everything would just dissolve in an instant. I don't know how it works, but I do know that the Apostle Paul says he got his teaching directly from Jesus and the Holy Spirit inspired him. And he's telling us 
that Jesus is holding everything in the universe together right now. He's the sustainer. He's the creator, and he's the sustainer. And so the seat that you are in right now is, is held together by Jesus. The, the building that we are in, that you're in at home, wherever you are, that's held together by Jesus. The planet that we're on is being held together by Jesus. And I, I don't understand what that looks like. I can't think on that scale. But I do know that it makes all of my problems seem small in comparison. This Jesus that I have a personal relationship with, that I hope you have a personal relationship with, he's holding everything together. And when I recognize that, it changes my perspective on what I go through every day. It changes my perspective on the footsteps of the day as I'm going and I'm focused so much on this step and so much on this step instead of on the Jesus who is out there saying, I got it all held together. I made it all. If I let go, it's all going to disappear. Just trust in me every day, not just for salvation, but every single day. Keep your eyes focused and fixed on me. And when we understand a Jesus that is that big, that is that immense, that is doing all of those things right now, he's not off in some distant place. He's holding everything together. He's holding the, the atoms that form your body together. When you understand that, do we have any need to fear? Do we have any need to have anxiety over who's going to get elected next month? And that's a hard one, I know. We have a lot of anxiety about politics in our country, but when we understand Jesus, do we have a reason to be anxious about that? Do we have any reason to get petty or to mess with worldly things when our Savior is this big and this immense and this incredible and we're supposed to keep our eyes always fixed on Him, not on the footsteps of the day? We don't need to fear if Jesus has His proper place in our lives. The Bible says God has not given you a spirit of fear. And this is why, because we have Jesus Christ. There's a third thing that Paul teaches here about Jesus Christ. He says that Jesus Christ is in charge of the church. Jesus Christ is in charge of the church. Verse 18 says, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. The hope of the church for believers is that we will rise from the dead just as Jesus did. And so what Paul is really doing here is he's saying the same thing two different ways. He's saying that he is the head of the church and he's supreme over all who will rise from the dead. So he's the head of the church and he's over supreme over all the people that are in the church, the people that will rise from the dead. He is first in everything, he says. Now this is a technical reality and we can read that and understand it intellectually, but that's not always how we treat him. See, many Christians view the church not as, not as necessarily governed by Jesus, but more as something to sort of meet our desires. Uh, it's, sometimes it's called a country club mentality where it's like, I want to get certain things out of church. I want it to, to match my preferences. I want it to do some things for me. And that can become our first priority for us, whether it's the style of preaching that we like or the style of music that we like or the decorations that we like or the ministry programs that we like. And sometimes we can elevate those things to such a position of prominence that even though those, aren't, oh, those are not illegitimate things to think about and talk about and have preferences in, if they take the focal point away from Jesus as the head of the church, then we've missed it. We've missed what the church is all about. Jesus is in charge of the church. And even if we don't realize it consciously, a lot of times subconsciously, we allow church for us to be about what is it doing for me, not about what does Jesus want me to do as a part of this church. He's the head of 
the church. He is in charge of the church. And if that's true, then we need to get our prime directives from him. What takes the focal point in our life as a church needs to come from him. So what did Jesus say about the church? What did he say about it? Real quickly here, he said that he would build it and that the gates of hell would not stand against it. That means that the, the goal of the church, right from the head of the church, is not for us to be in a defensive posture. It's for us to be going out into the world. He didn't say that the forces of hell wouldn't stand against the gates of the church. He said that the gates of hell wouldn't stand against the forces of the church. We are supposed to be out there communicating with people, sharing the love of Jesus in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our workplaces, sharing our faith with other people, reaching people for Jesus. Jesus also prayed when he was on this earth that the church would be one, united through our bond in Jesus so that other people would believe in Jesus. He says in John 17, may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me. Think about that for a minute. Jesus is saying that his church that he's the head of needs to have unity because that will help the world know that he's for real, that he really is the Savior, that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. And you know this, before Jesus left this earth, he gave his new church leaders their, their instructions in Matthew 28. And he said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this. I am with you even to the end of the age. See, if Jesus is the head of the church and if we are his body, then our number one goal needs to be living out these instructions from Jesus. Everything else is secondary. It's not that it's not important, but it can't take the priority place. Jesus says he wants his church to be all about unity and love and reaching more people for him. That's what the head of our global church says is our mission. That's what we're supposed to be all about. Now, there's one more thing that we learn from this passage, and that is that Jesus Christ is the only way to peace with God. Jesus Christ is the only way to peace with God. Verse 19 says, for God in all his fullness was pleased to, to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. And there is no doubt in Paul's mind that Jesus Christ is fully God. He says all the fullness of God lived in Jesus Christ. He is fully God. No matter what any other religion says about him. He's not one of God's children along with Satan. He's not a created being, one of the angels, nothing like that. Jesus Christ is fully God. And he says it's through Jesus Christ that we can have peace and reconciliation with God. Now you may be wondering as you read this passage, how could he say that he's made peace with everything, that he's reconciled everything? How can he say that if we don't see that in reality everywhere. We don't see peace everywhere. We don't see peace between heaven and earth everywhere. We don't see reconciliation everywhere. I'm going to take a little detour here and just delve into an aspect of theology just briefly. Because as we go through a book like this, we're going to touch on things like this that, that maybe aren't entirely a part of the main point, but I think it's important that we at least acknowledge there's a tension here. How on earth can Paul say that Jesus has reconciled everything? Look around, that does not seem to be the case. How could he say that he made peace with everything on heaven and earth when it doesn't look like everything's at peace with God? All you gotta do is turn on the news or get online. Not everything's at peace with God. So how can what Paul said possibly be true? And this is where we're gonna delve into a little bit of theology where we may have some difference of opinion here and that's okay. 
there'll be some different views on this that don't go in the dogma bucket. In fact, they don't even really go in the doctrine bucket per se. There'll be some people here with a different kind of conviction on this, and that's okay. What do I believe about this? I'm going to share my view with you, and I had to give those preferences because this touches on an aspect of theology. I'll explain it as I go. I believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he purchased freedom for every human who ever lived. Now, not every Christian believes that, and that's okay. That's called limited atonement. There are some Christians who believe that Jesus only purchased freedom for a certain group of people that would end up believing in him. Uh, that's limited atonement, and there are those that believe that he, purchased, um, that he purchased freedom for every single person, even those that wouldn't believe for him. That's called unlimited atonement. And it's more complex than that, but I, I'm not going to get into it here. The, the bottom line is, I think the way I answer this question, which is a legitimate question that, that anyone would have reading this passage, the answer for me is that, that Jesus did purchase reconciliation for everyone, and that he did arrange peace for everyone. I'll give you a couple of examples of why I believe that. Um, Jesus is an infinite God. When he died, he paid an infinite price, which could cover every single person. Um, but did it? Did it cover every single person? I think it did. 1 John 2, 2 says, he himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. So that is a passage that to me communicates that Jesus' death atoned for, purchased the freedom for the sin of all the world. Second Peter 2 says, But there were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false prophets among you. There will be false prophets among you. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the Lord who bought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. So my answer to the question of how has Jesus brought reconciliation to everything is that he did, he paid for it all, he made the way for reconciliation for everything, but not everyone experiences that. My answer is that Jesus absolutely did that on the cross, but not everyone is going to accept that reconciliation, just as you can offer reconciliation to someone in a relationship, and they don't necessarily have to accept it. And so that doesn't mean that you are reconciled, the two of you, but it was offered, it was placed out there, and that's kind of how I respond to this question of how is that possible. What about peace with everything? Peace with everything in heaven and on earth, through, the blood, through his blood on the cross. Well, Philippians 2 says there will be a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That time has not come yet. But there will be a time when people who did not follow Jesus, have not trusted in Jesus, will have no choice upon seeing everything that's going on around them. The evidence will be so clear in front of them that they will have to admit he really is. He really is Lord. And at that time, there will be peace. It won't be an easy peace. It will be an undeniable peace because there will be no fighting between God and people. There will be no more war between the forces of evil and the forces of good because God will have forced them into peace at that time. And so he has made peace with everything in heaven and on earth. We don't have the reality of that yet. Paul is speaking prophetically here. This is something Jesus had already accomplished, something he's already made a way for, but we don't see it actually in our lives yet. But what he's really trying to get across here is that Jesus has done all of this for us so we don't need to add anything else to it. Jesus is the creator and he's the sustainer and he is God and he's all these things and he's purchased our freedom and reconciliation. He's paid for us through, the, through his blood on the cross. He's done all of this for us and we don't need to add more things to it. In fact, not only that, but we need to keep our eyes focused on him. 
We need to stay focused on him every single day in everything that we are doing. And if Jesus has done all of that for us, the question for us today is just this. Will we live like it? Not just today, but will we live like it tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and every day this week? Will we live like Jesus has done all this stuff for us? When you keep your eyes fixed on this Jesus and you filter everything you're doing through this, it makes all your problems seem small by comparison. It makes the challenges you're dealing with seem small. It makes you realize that everything you're going through, you need to be bringing to Jesus and asking for him to guide you, asking for his Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and guidance. There's so much about this Jesus. When you realize he's holding everything together, we have no reason to fear. Will we live our lives focused on Jesus? Will he have the central place, the place of priority in our lives? Will our actions and words reflect our faith in this immense Jesus that we have the privilege of seeing as the visible image of the invisible God. I'm going to pray right now, and then we are going to take communion together. And communion is an incredible opportunity for us to remind each other of the central place that Jesus needs to have in our lives. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me right now? Jesus, it's so amazing what you have done for us and who you are. And I will be the first to confess that I have not lived every day this week with you as my focal point. I have not, I have have said things that were not said in the context of recognizing what you've done for me. I have done things and I have thought things this week that were not filtered through my relationship with you. It seems so simple and yet it's so hard every day because there are all these distractions that want to pull us off the path, the the traps that the enemy puts out there for us, Lord. And so our prayer is that as we remember your sacrifice now, that you would help us to live every day with you as the focal point, to to not allow anything to distract us or or keep us from that relationship that you want us to have, Lord. My prayer for everyone here who's here in this room or or out on the north patio or, or watching online right now, God, is that you would help each of us to keep you as the focal point tomorrow. Tomorrow when someone says something to us that, that hits us the wrong way, Lord, let us remember our relationship with you and what you've done for us, what you've forgiven for us. We're supposed to forgive each other because you've forgiven us. We're supposed to love each other how you have loved us, Lord. Lord, help us to keep you as that center point in our lives so that we can stay on the right path. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.